Good morning. So we've been working through the, the book of Job. For those of you who've been walking through this, uh, the series with us, you know from chapters 3 through 37, Job has been asserting his innocence he's, and his integrity. He's been expressing his anger. He's been in despair. He bears the agony of his soul. He's, saying, he's, just, he's upfront and he's honest about the, the agony that he's experiencing. And again and again and again in those chapters, he cries out to God. Where are you, God? Where are you? Why are you so distant and silent? Why are you being unfair? God, let me make my case before you. Job 13, 22. Summon me and I will answer. Or you speak. Let, let me speak, and you reply to me. He's asking for an audience with God. And finally, beginning in chapter 38, where we, where we, where we are today, God makes his presence known. God has let Job speak, and now he's about to reply to Job. Now, part of what's surprising about the way God does this is what he doesn't do. Nowhere does he say that, you know, Job, you're a sinner. He doesn't charge Job with any sins. He doesn't give direct answers to Job's questions. He doesn't apologize for having been silent for so long. He never tells Job the reason for his suffering. He just never tells him. He doesn't say anything about what happened in chapters 1 and 2, the, the kind of Wager, if you will, between God and Satan. God never says that to Job. Job never knows how this thing started, why he suffered. And he doesn't exactly acknowledge Job's sufferings. I mean, it's very clear, beginning to end, that God knows what Job is suffering. But he doesn't highlight that in his response to Job. What does he do? Well, his response to Job comes mostly in the form of questions. There are 77 questions in chapters 38, 1 to 42, 6. 77 questions. And it's not like, it's not so much that God is interrogating Job through all of this. What he's doing is he's using questions to educate Job. He's, using, he's not trying to intimidate or humiliate Job. He's trying to open up Job's perspective. And he's using questions of Job so that Job gets a chance to think about it and have his, his uh, perspective expanded. He's trying to help Job understand his place in the world. And trying to help Job realize that Job really doesn't know very much not nearly as much as he he, thinks he knows. He's trying to give Job a fresh perspective of who God is and a fresh understanding of how trustworthy God actually is. So if you're reading it, kind of the structure of of these four chapters is that uh, uh, the Lord replies to Job in two parts. 
In the first part, so there's a Job, God says something, Job has a brief reply, and then Job, uh, God starts again, and then there's another reply from Job. So chapter 38, verse 2. Who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Now, at this point, it's only God and Job, so Job knows who it is. Right? Yeah. So, and then he continues. Brace yourself. Brace yourself like a man. I don't know what that means, but brace yourself. I will question you, and you will answer me. And then God keeps going with a whole bunch of questions. And then again, in uh, chapter 40, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. That's first, uh, chapter 40, verse 2, and then verse 6. Again, brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? So two big sections. God, Job, God, Job. And what I want to do is highlight four things that God says to Job, and then at the end, talk about how Job responds, okay? But the first thing I want, you to, I want to highlight, I want you to notice, before we even talk about what, what God says, is who it is that is speaking to Job. In chapters 1 and 2, and then again in chapters 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, God is referred to as Yahweh. In between chapters 3 to 37, there's some variation of the name for God, El, which actually just means God, or Elohim, or Eloi. Though, you know, they're all variations of the same thing, God. And then, and then the name for, used for God is Shaddai, which speaks of his power. Shaddai means the Almighty One. So you, so you have Yahweh at the beginning and at the end, and in between it's all Elohim or Shaddai, kind of a semi-impersonal name for God and, and something about God's power. Yahweh is a very different word. It's the way that God reveals himself. When he reveals himself to Moses, that's the word he uses. Who shall I say sent me? Job, Job, uh, Moses says to God, and God says, tell them Yahweh sent you. I am who I am sent you. It's God's personal name. It's God's covenant name. Job's friends from chapters 3 to 37, when they refer to God, they, on some level, it's pretty, it's very impersonal. They're not talking so much about God's heart. They're talking about God's rules. They're talking about God's power. They're not talking about what moves God on the inside. And they're not talking about God as a relational being, a relational character. They're not talking about God as the one who, the one who begins and sustains relationships. 
They're talking about the God who can do whatever he wants. Both are true, but they're very different. Yahweh is the name that God chooses to use for himself when he's establishing a covenant relationship with human beings. Covenant isn't the kind of word that we use very much in our culture these days. We use contracts, we don't use covenants. We talk about contracts, we don't talk about covenants so much, except in one case. Even now, we often, when we talk about marriage, we talk about the marriage covenant. What happens in a marriage covenant? What happens is we make sacred vows to one another. This summer in August, my wife Les and I are going to celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary. Yeah. It shows you any person can stay married if they have the right wife. Thanks be to God. So 35 years. I remember when we were preparing for marriage, I remember on that, we, on that wedding day, August 14th, at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, I remember making vows to Leslie. Remember Leslie making vows to me. We, we established covenant with one another before God and one another and all those that were gathered. Several years later, Leslie and I bought our first home. And for that home, in order to do that, there are a couple of things we had to do. We had to sign a purchase and sales agreement. We had to sign a mortgage agreement. Those were contracts, basically. They said that this is what we agree to do and this is what we receive as a response. Huge difference between a contract and a covenant. Huge difference. It's a huge difference between a covenant and signing an apartment lease. Or a job, you know, contract. What the author of the book of Job is saying to us is that the God who relates to Job, the God whom Job knows, is a God of relationship, a God of covenant. It's Yahweh who speaks to Job. And it's Yahweh that Job responds to. It's not this impersonal force in the universe. It's not this distant, absent God or this God who just lays down the law and then the chips fall where they may. That is not the God that Job is relating to and it's not the God that we know. Our God is Yahweh, the God who reveals his personal name and opens up his heart to us. That's the first thing you got to get out of what's happening here. Second thing. Yahweh shows his wisdom through his creation. I'm going to read several passages out of uh, chapters 38, uh, out of chapter 38 in this case, 
just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So beginning with verses four to 11. Well, let me start right at the beginning. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Praise yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth in the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits on it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Jumping down to verse 16. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep, have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Being a little bit sarcastic there. Or let me jump down to uh, verses 31 to 37. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who gives the ibis wisdom? Or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens? And it just continues. It goes on and on. So what what is God doing? Why is he kind of taking Job through his tour, through this kind of, tour of creation. Why is he talking about the earth and the seas and the suns and the stars and the animals, all this stuff? What God is doing is indirectly responding to the question that Job raised. 
He's responding to the... See, Job has been questioning God's care of the universe. And so this is God's answer to the question, who is this who is obscuring my plans with words without knowledge? He's saying, who is this who's misrepresenting what I'm doing in the universe? Who is this who is clouded in his understanding of what I'm doing in the universe? He's answering by giving Job a tour of the cosmos, so to speak. He's saying, you're questioning the way, my ways in the world. You're questioning what I'm doing in the world. Okay, here it is. Now tell me, Job, were you there? Did you do this? Can you do this? Do you even know what's out there? And part of what's going on here in God's kind of exposure of the vastness of creation is that he's getting at one of Job's core assumptions. See, on some level, Job has been assuming that he's the center of the universe, that the universe revolves around him, and that God has to answer to him on some level. That what happens to Job is the key thing happening in all of creation. Job thinks he's the center of the universe. And what God is doing is he's helping Job realize that there's something bigger going on than Job thought, even though God never exactly tells him what it is. Because Job thinks he's the center of the universe, he loses any capacity to consider any other possibilities for what's happening to him other than that God is unfair. And here's the thing. If we think the universe revolves around us, if we think the universe revolves around us, then if we think the universe must bow before us, we are going to be very unhappy in this world. Because the universe will not bow. And we are not the center. And if we see ourselves as the center of the universe, we're going to miss so much of what God is doing in us and what God is doing in the world. We're just going to miss God. So I ask you, look at the creation. It's vastness, it's complexity, it's beauty, it's extraordinary diversity, it's majesty, it's kind of oddness. You know, you've got voles and you've got whales, you've got eagles and ostriches, you've got horses and animal and camels, all this weird stuff in a universe, right? Who'd 
come up, who could come up with all of this? Who would come up with all of this? What kind of God creates a universe like this? So here's the question. What does creation say to you about who God is and what he's like? Sometime this week, take the time and look around. Just kind of look and notice. What do you see? You look at a leaf. You might be able to actually find a leaf now. Look at a leaf. Even a leaf is so complex. Or look at your hand. Or, uh, you know, Google, do a Google Earth over the Grand Canyon or something like that. And just take the time to look. The wisdom of God is displayed through his creation. Now, God also begins to show, he displays his power to to Job. He's going to do it a funny kind of way. So I'm going to jump to chapter 40, starting with verse 15. And then I'm going to circle back to another part of chapter 40 after that. So, Job has been questioning why God allows the wicked to have what he sees as free reign. Why doesn't he punish and bring judgment to the wicked? And there are kind of two parts to the answer. But implied in, the, in, in this is, God, why do you have power? Do you really have power? Why are you allowing this to happen? And so part of the way that God answers that is by highlighting two of his creations. He's going to talk about behemoth and leviathan. So let me read this section, starting with verse 15. Look at behemoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with a sword, with his sword. The hills bring its their produce, all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It's, you know, it's a cure that the urine should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? Then he jumps to Leviathan, chapter 41. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? 
Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for what? For life? Can you make a pet of it? Like a bird? Or put it on a leash for the young women in, the house, in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. And any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? If you can't handle something I made, why do you think you can stand against me, Job? Continues verse 25 and following. When it rises up, when Leviathan rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron treats it, iron it treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club seems to be but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its undersides are jagged potsherds leaving a trail in mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron, and it stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. So Job says, so God says, Job, here's a couple of beasts that I made. We don't know what they are. Some people think that uh, they, it may be kind of a, a poetic allusion to the hippopotamus and the crocodile. But, you know, they're, they're sort of the most terrifying <clears throat> land beast and the most terrifying kind of water sea beast, if you will. And God is saying, look, Job, let's see what we can agree. My whole universe is too, too much for you to comprehend and handle, right? We just established that earlier. Okay, yeah. Okay, now let's just focus on two beasts. Can you handle them? Can you bend them to your control? You know you can't, right? Can we agree on this? You can't handle the universe in its vastness, and you can't even manage just a couple of the creatures I made. So why, Job, are you questioning my management of the universe? Why? He's saying, here are two, two beasts that I made. And to me, they're as if they were pets. They obey everything. Everything that God commands. 
Even the most fearsome beasts bow to his control and serve his purpose. Now, Leviathan, we don't exactly know, again, what what these two things represent. Well, we have a sense of what they represent. We don't actually know what they are. Commentators aren't just sure. There is, they kind of get used broader than what they might be as actual uh, physical beasts, as an actual hippo or a crocodile. But, they, but, but what they represent is the untamable force and terror of the universe. The powers that come against us that human beings just cannot manage. Leviathan is referred to in Psalm 74 and, and, and uh, it's, it's saying, referring to God, it was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the waters. This may be an allusion to the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. What, what the psalmist is saying is, God, you are so much bigger than the most fearsome things we can even imagine. You have power over them. So let me ask this. What frightens you as you look at the world? What frightens you? What powers, what terrors come at you as you lay in bed at night and as you face the world during the day? What God is saying is that all the terrors, all the powers of the universe are under his control. And because he's a God who has made covenant with you, with us, he's watching over us. Psalm 62 closes. One thing I have heard, two things God has spoken. You, O Lord, are strong. And you, O Lord, are loving. You, O Lord, are strong. And you, O Lord, are loving. God uses his wisdom and his strength to express and demonstrate his love to us. So when you think about God, think about the fact that he has absolute power and control, and he uses it for your ultimate good. And then God also demonstrates his justice and goodness. Let me go back, back into the early part of chapter 40. Verses 6 through 14. Again, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. 
Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your right hand, your own right hand, can save you. Job had said that God was unjust in the way he treated him. This is chapter 6, 29, 27. There's a bunch of places he said it. He was unjust in the way he treated him, and he was unjust in the way that he failed to judge the wicked. He's questioning God's control over evil. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And he begins to answer by saying, okay, Job, let's stop and think about this. Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Here, God is not questioning Job's moral authority, his authority to, make, to have moral, you know, his ability to have moral insight. What he's questioning is whether Job, even if Job could make good moral decisions, right decisions, even if he had the understanding and the wisdom and knowledge to do that, which he doesn't, but even if he did, could he actually implement it? So he says, do you have an arm like God's to wield a weapon against the wicked? Do you have God's strength to, wield, to execute judgment? Can your voice thunder like, like God when he charges into battle against evildoers? Do you have that kind of voice? He's saying, really what he's saying is, you know, the wicked people in this world, they have power. They're in positions of authority and influence. And he says, Job, do you have the power, do you have the authority, do you have the influence to execute judgment against them? And the answer, of course, is no. What God is saying, but I do. But I do. And it's happening in my timing, in my way, at my discretion. But there is a day of judgment for all who are evildoers. What Job doesn't know is the way God is going to execute his judgment is through the cross and the resurrection. Through the offer of grace. And a willingness to let people reap the judgment they choose. We're going to celebrate communion in a couple of minutes. But what communion tells us is that the God who made us, the God who made us is the God who loves us. And the God who loves us is the God who can save us. 
And the God who can save us, saved us by sending his own son to the cross on our behalf. He has the power to save us. It's the power of love unleashed. It's the power of absolute love unleashed. Job questions God because he just does not see. He doesn't have what we have. He doesn't have the revelation of Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus is coming. But he has seen enough to know, to to become real clear about the fact that he's not the center of the universe. He's become real clear that he can't rule the world any better than God does. Not even as clear not even close to as good as God does. He doesn't have the knowledge. He doesn't have the wisdom. He doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the strength. He begins to realize that God alone is his refuge and his strength, that God has the last word, and it's the good word. It's the word he's been waiting to hear. There are times, I think, when all of us think that we can rule the world better than God. There are times when we say, if I, were, if I were God, this is what I would do. And implicit in that is, I wish God would do it and he's not doing what's wrong with him. I'm reading a quote from Francis Anderson. This is an older commentary, but he says, men are eager, so men as opposed to people, men are eager to use force to combat evil and in their impatience, They wish God would do the same more often. But by such destructive acts, men do and become evil. To behave as God suggests in 48 to 14, Job would not only usurp the role of God, he would become another Satan. Only God can destroy creatively. Only God can transmute evil into good. As creator responsible for all that happens in his world, he is able to make everything, good and bad, work together for good. Ultimately, only God is the one who can take evil and use it as a channel of grace. None of us can do that. So God has been speaking to Job, not in ways that Job expected or asked for, but in ways that break through. And he responds to God with humility and with relief and with wonder and awe and with repentance and surrender. And one of the things to note is he's responding to God, but nothing has changed in Job's situation at this point. He is still without his family. He's still destitute. He's still covered with sores. He's still being judged and criticized by his supposed friends. All that is still true. Nothing has changed for Job, but in Job, everything's changed. On the inside, everything has changed. His perspective has changed. His heart has changed. And that's what happens for us when we actually begin to see God afresh. 
Our circumstances may not change. They may not change immediately. They may not change ever in this life. But how we view them, how we view ourselves in them, how we view God in them, all of that changes when we see God. All of that changes. You, you know the old uh, King James passage. Without a vision, the people perish. The vision they're talking about is a vision of God. Without a fresh revelation, a fresh understanding of God, people perish. We fall into our own narrow, self-centered brokenness. We need God to reveal himself for us to thrive and flourish in his presence. None of us are the center of the universe. None of us can rule the universe better than God. None of us have the knowledge or power or wisdom or justice to rule the world well or vindicate ourselves from all evil. God alone is our refuge and our strength. God alone is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And God alone will make all things right in the universe. Whatever happens to us in this world, whatever is done to us in this world, is not the last word. God, there is a resurrection waiting for us. Yeah, amen. And in the meantime, it's the promise of God. I will be with you always. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to remember who you are. You are Yahweh, the God who established covenant with us. You are our Father who embraces us as his children. You are the one who called us to yourself and freed us from the bondage and brokenness of sin. You're the one who rules the world with justice and will make all things right in the end. Lord, help us to see you. Help us to lean in hard and listen well and hear your voice. And help us, Lord, to keep you at the very center of our beings and lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.